So for those, I'm going to take a much more editorial judgment. I'm going to look at what else is out there. I'm going to look at what we can provide uniquely. What is our point of view? Casey, who founded our content operation, our chief medical officer uses the phrase, what are you adding to the internet? And I think about that a lot. Every time we do a piece, we do, what are you adding to the internet? And in our briefs that we do out to writers, the document that has the outline, I ask them, what's the reason for this piece to exist? And I forget how I phrase it, but it's something essentially like somebody reads this piece and sits down at a bar next to their friend. How do they describe it? Like, give me a sentence. And if we can answer those two questions, the piece is just going to be a lot more successful rather than write the piece and then try to figure that out at the end. Hi, and welcome to the Optimize Podcast. My name is Nate Matherson, and I am your host. On this weekly podcast, we sit down with some of the smartest minds in content marketing and SEO. Our goal is to give you perspective and insights on what's moving the needle in organic search. Today, I'm thrilled to sit down with Mike Haney. Mike is the editorial director at Levels, a company that helps people see how the food they eat affects their health. In our episode today, Mike and I chat about creating content and what is a very important topic category, that being health. Health is also a your money, your life category of search. And Mike and I will go deep on the content creation processes they use at Levels, sourcing, EE, and more. Mike and I will also chat about KPIs, the metrics to check, and even conversion rate optimization. And this episode of the Optimize Podcast is brought to you by Positional. If you don't know by now, my name's Nate and I'm one of the co-founders of Positional. And I'm really excited to announce that we just launched our content analytics tool set. This has very quickly become my favorite feature. It's one that I've wanted for the last 10 years. And it's really effective in identifying which pages on your site users might be having a low quality experience on. What we do is we track metrics like scroll depth, bounce rate, and time on page to score your pages and then allow you to go deeper to see where within a piece of content, for example, which paragraph is causing people to leave or where, for example, you might want to add a call to action within that page. This tool set is called Content Analytics. It's our newest feature. I'm stoked about it and you should be too. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the Optimize podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, well, the first question I always ask our guests is, how did you get into the world of content marketing and SEO? How did this become your uh, career path and then role at Levels? Sure. It's a little bit of a backwards trajectory for me, I guess. I actually came from the world of journalism. So that's my background. I was a science journalist for on and off for about 20 years. And uh, increasingly, as the number of journalistic outlets sort of decreases, magazines was my specialty. That's not a huge space anymore. Uh, a lot of folks with my training have now gone on to do content for companies as companies have all essentially become publishers and largely replaced what a lot of the editorial outlets used to do. So when you go to work for a company, sort of regardless of the goals, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get into a lot more what the different kinds of goals you can have with content are, at the end of the day, you want eyeballs on the stuff that you're making. And so that's how you know I find myself spending a lot of time thinking about SEO and, and optimization to make sure that the stuff we're making is actually being useful. I love that you've come from a scientific journalist background into what is a scientific category in search and also like a very uh, difficult category to create content in. And I know that you're an editorial director. What is an editorial director and what do you do at your role at Levels? 
an editorial director is a guy who asks for a fancy title for his LinkedIn profile. <laughs> it could be any number of things. What we try to sort of signify with that title in particular is that the content that we make, certainly early on, and, and I think this is still true even as we become a little bit more growth focused as opposed to purely education focused, was always meant to be editorial and not pure marketing. That is to say, education first, meant to be really reported, really rigorous, really science-based. And editorial ideally sort of contains that idea. And the director part just means that all things content sort of flow through me. So when I came on, you know, I was employee number 13 here at the company. So I came on very early to essentially build this content editorial operation, build a newsroom effectively, put in place all the processes, hire the folks. That's really all that kind of implies. And I know you and I have had some past conversations and it sounds like levels at levels, content has, has always been a priority, or at least it was a priority very early on. Like how did you and like the levels org identify content as like an important focus and channel for the, the marketing function uh, at the company or why, I guess is another question. Yeah, I think there were two really motivating factors very early on. So when we're talking just a handful of founders that were there, one of the founders is our chief medical officer, who's a doctor, and she really started the content operation before I came on board for the first probably six months or so, writing what were effectively like white papers, very deep dives into the relationship between metabolic health, blood sugar, et cetera, and various conditions and the sort of why you care. And I think the two reasons that they were focused on is one, education. We were essentially making a market at the time. This is about three, four years ago. The idea of monitoring your glucose, your blood sugar, if you're not a diabetic, was, was pretty esoteric. Continuous glucose monitors, which is the, the tool that we use, were, were pretty esoteric in a health space. And so a lot of it was just making that category. There was just a lot of education to do to get people to say, hey, here's a thing that matters, you're not paying a lot of attention to, but you should, and here's why. The other was, I think, as a lot of startups, particularly in the health space, face is credibility. It's just you want to be able to signal very early on, hey, we're serious, we're science-based, we're health-based, we're research-based, right? There's a reason one of the founders is a doctor, Stanford-trained surgeon. You want to just make sure that your investors know, your early customers know, press and the market knows that this isn't some kind of weird fly-by-night thing that you've just come up with. And, you know, again, particularly in that startup health space, Things really run the gamut from very serious research-based things to things that are a little bit more sort of trendy or, you know, maybe based on more thin research. And so that's what motivated, A, having content early on. I would say the third thing is Sam, our, our CEO, recognized very early on that content is super scalable. You know, he's a real productivity freak. He was just on Tim Ferriss talking about this a couple of weeks ago. And he thinks a lot about what's scalable and where our time goes. And if I write a piece of content to make an argument or to communicate an idea, I can use that forever and all time, as opposed to having to constantly reiterate to people. So I think that's also what drove a lot of that. Focus on content early on is this will really pay off over time. A few years from now, we don't have to keep trying to make this argument or, or articulate this point because we've already done it and we can just consistently point people back to that blog post or back to that sort of article. And you're in a space where there's a lot to write about. And I know you've created a lot of content. How big is like the content team today at Levels? Uh, the content team is me. <laughs> I am still the kind of sole head. We had one other uh, full-time person for a little while, but now it's back to, to just me uh, on the content side. And then as with all things content, particularly within the editorial side, it's the infrastructure of the industry is really built on contractors. So freelance writers are you know, how most editorial outlets get things done. The idea of a staff writer, that kind of thing is just not really something that exists much anymore. And then even across other functions like SEO or conversion rate optimization or fact-checking or those kinds of things, again, we can kind of rely 
design agencies and contractors. So, you know, my job is early on was kind of building that infrastructure. Now it's essentially coordinating. So we don't need a lot of in-house staff to do the kind of volume we're doing. And we do now about two posts a week at our max. I think we were doing about four a week. Um, and so, you know, that's the cadence we're supporting with this kind of infrastructure of one full time and then a bunch of contractors. But it's pretty scalable to do even the kind of high quality research based work that we're doing without a lot of full time staff. A question that I'm asked almost every single day is how do I find freelance writers or like how do I build my freelancer motion and team? So I'm going to ask you, how do you do it or how did you do it at Levels? Yeah, it's a really good question. The thing I always say back to folks is first, tell me what you're trying to get done. What's the point of your content? What's your KPI? What's your goal? What do you, what does success look like with X piece of content or with X library or X blog or whatever it is you're creating? For us, because we knew it was always meant to be really more of a media company than a sort of company growth focused blog. I went back to the kind of journalistic well. I went back to the places that I went to when I was an editor hiring freelance writers. So a lot of it was network of just folks that I knew and other editors I'd worked with. And I asked them who's good going out to things like graduate programs or journalism programs at schools can be a really good at colleges is a really good thing. NYU has got a really good science reporting program. So that can be a good place to just ping in and say like, Hey, I'm looking for hungry, smart, journalists um, and writers. And, you know, those folks will often work for less money. They're eager for the clips. They're willing to take this kind of stuff on. It's much harder to get somebody who's been a science writer for 30 years writing for the Times or writing for Discover Magazine or Scientific American to come do a, a company piece, a sort of, you know, marketing piece, even if you're saying, well, it's not really that. It's like, man, I want to buy line on a company blog, but younger writers are going to be more willing to do it. So that's a good place to look. And finally, LinkedIn. I still go to LinkedIn and it just depends on what you're searching for. So I search for, you know, science journalists. I start with kind of journalist and those kinds of words, editor, et cetera, to try to weed out folks who are, are purely sort of content marketing writers, just because, which is a great skill, but it's not usually what I'm looking for. So if you know what you're trying to do with the content, then you can tailor your search a little bit more towards finding in that group. And I think that's a step a lot of folks just don't think to take. They go directly to the content agency or the content marketers or the folks on LinkedIn who are marketing themselves as content experts. And if what you want to do is this sort of more research-based, you know, more sort of thorough particularly in spaces like science and health, but even in things like fintech, I think, where you want folks that have a little bit more rigorous experience, like don't be afraid to go look in the journalism pool. There are a lot of uh, great writers out there. Okay. There's so much that I need to unpack here, but first I want to ask, what are one or two mistakes that like you could make, or you've seen a company make when like hiring or working with freelance writers? It's a really good question. I think one big mistake, again, comes down to expectations. I think you want to be really clear with your writers what it is you're expecting, what success is going to look like. And, you know, especially if you're starting out, maybe you don't exactly know yet, but you can come up with a hypothesis. We still do this. I try lots of different types of articles that maybe have different purposes to them, or I'm testing different hypotheses with this piece. And I'm pretty transparent with the writer about what that is. I just did a piece, for instance, just as an aside, but I think it's an example people can relate to of, I wanted to see if there was a way to start with AI and then clean it up, which, you know, everybody's run this kind of experiment. But for our kind of very research-based, again, very rigorous stuff, does it get me anywhere to do that versus just assigning from scratch? My assumption had always been no. 
and based on experiments I tried, I thought maybe not really, but I tried it with a different piece and I was transformed with the writer. Here's what you're going to do. Here's our goals. Here's what I'm trying to really optimize for is like, keep track of your time and what you had to do specifically to make this into the kind of piece that you know I would want. So that's just an example of be clear about what you want out of a piece and be transparent with the writer and prepare them as well as possible. Just giving a writer an SEO outline is usually not enough. Again, depending on what you want, but going a little bit beyond that and saying, here's what's important to us as an organization in our pieces. Either we want this purely optimized or, hey, let's make sure we're quoting a few studies in here. Let's make sure this is differentiated from other stuff that's out there. I'd really like you to go out and read what's on WebMD, what's on Healthline, et cetera, and make sure that we've got a unique point of view here. Like that kind of direction can go a long way toward getting you a piece that is much closer to what you want. Then I think the experience a lot of folks have when they start hiring content marketing writers and a lot of agencies is you get something in and you go, I don't know. I don't love this. I guess it's okay because they're the experts and they made it. And that's just a good way to burn a lot of money before you ultimately go like, I don't like anything that's been done here and it's not really meeting our sort of goals. So I think expectations is is a really key thing. Mike, you've given me so much to unpack. It, this is incredible. Okay. So the next thing I want to unpack is cost. Like, And I actually wasn't prepared to ask this question, but you've mentioned cost a couple of times. Like, I know it varies dramatically, but people always ask me too, like, what does it cost to like get a piece of content created? If you're hiring a freelancer to do it, what does it cost? At least if there's a range that like I could work with. I can absolutely, I, I like to be transparent about this. Again, when it comes to the kind of content we do, because an assumption I hear a lot when I talk to folks who do my job at other companies, again, particularly other health companies who aspire to do the kind of deeply reported and research-based stuff that we do is that it's way out of their price range. And what they almost always find is that I spend less money than they do on their content agency. A lot of it comes down to finding those writers and being able to handle that relationship directly rather than outsource it to an agency, although we do work with a really good agency as well. I'll say that the anchor I use, so in the journalism world, it's always been a per word basis you know, X dollars per word. It's a stupid way to assign things because there are 500 word articles that are really easy to write. And there are 500 word articles that are really hard to write because you have to talk to 20 different sources to get that 500 words. So it's always been a, a kind of bad metric, but it's one that both editors and journalists understand and kind of anchor around. So I use a buck a word as my kind of anchor. There are times I will pay less than that if I know the piece is really easy, if they really just have to go through and read a bunch of stuff on our site and kind of synthesize it, or I'm giving them a pretty detailed outline. All the way up to two, three bucks a word would be the most I would probably go. Two is more common if it's a much more research intensive piece. If I'm going, hey, you got to go read 25 studies and talk to five experts to churn out this 5,000 word piece on the relationship between cancer and metabolic health and like literally summarize the last 20 years of research. That'll go to two bucks a word, maybe more, maybe two fifty, three bucks a word, particularly if they're an experienced journalist. And I know that they're accustomed to getting that at other outlets. Then the other thing that we pay for on top of that is fact checking. So I hire freelance fact checkers, again, the kinds of folks that any editorial outlet, you know, Tech Review, Scientific American, Popular Science, the kind of, that's the kinds of places these people are accustomed to working and the sort of rigor that I expect them to bring to it. And they tend to go for anywhere from 40 bucks an hour to like 75 bucks an hour. And on any given piece, on the longer pieces, it's anywhere from maybe three to like $700 incrementally that we spend on the fact checking on top of it. And that's really the bulk of it. It's just that writer cost and the fact checker. And then whoever's doing your editing, in this case, it's usually me. But if it's an external editor, external editor who's good at this stuff is going to be hundred bucks an hour roughly. So you might have another five-ish hours on a piece, something like that. But that's kind of the ballpark of where I'd go. Our, our pieces, I would say, cost anywhere between 2000 probably at the low end, if I take into account all the costs up to like five, six at the top end. And then as far as like the 
outlining process goes. Because I know you mentioned you're not a fan of like cookie cutter SEO outlines. And I also heard you say something that really resonated with me. It sounded like, you know, making your content unique or having like a unique value prop to that piece of content you create is really important. I know we're not a huge fan of SEO outlines, but I'd be curious to know, like in the traditional sense, right? Like when you read an article, probably on our site about creating an SEO outline, but in your outlines, like what are those inputs? Like what goes into like a fantastic outline or brief? Yeah, it's a good question. And I will say one of the things I've done uniquely at this job, even from previous editorial jobs I've had before, is I've gotten much more prescriptive at the front end in terms of how much I outline and brief the writer for what I want. I found just the more prescriptive I get, the better output I get. And it absolutely still happens that the writer in the course of reporting something might come back and go, hey, you know what? It turns out that thing that you thought was a big section, it's just kind of not researched there. But this is a really interesting point. We should do this instead. So I'm always open to it changing. But the more prescriptive I can go in, it just saves them time and saves me time. This is going to be an annoying theme, but it also comes back to expectations. So there are articles I write where I'm writing it really squarely because I think we have an SEO opportunity. And in that case, I'm going to lean a lot more heavily on the SEO outline that I get from tools like yours, right? That says, here's, we've done the analysis. We've done the thinking. Here's what you really need to have as the heads. I'm still going to run that through a filter of, well, does it make sense for us, right? There are just things that we're not going to talk about. We're a tool that's aimed at tracking blood sugar for people without diabetes. So I'm not going to do a whole section on how this works for people with diabetes, even though the SEO tool is almost always going to tell me to do that because when it sees blood sugar, it goes diabetes, right? So I have to make those kind of smart edits about it, even if it might hurt my SEO a little bit, because ultimately I don't want folks who have diabetes necessarily to find this article. I mean, great if they do and it provides them value, but that's not the kind of traffic that's going to ultimately lead to sort of growth from me. So doing that kind of filter of what your expectation is for the piece, there are other pieces we do where we don't expect an SEO bump for it, or that's not the primary purpose of what we're doing. We're doing for education. We're doing because we know our members will find it useful. We do it because we know it has a, it'll have a huge newsletter uh, impact. We do a weekly newsletter. It drives a lot of traffic to the site. What performs there is not always what performs in, in SEO. So for those, I'm going to take a much more editorial judgment. I'm going to look at what else is out there. I'm going to look at what we can provide uniquely. What is our point of view? Casey, who founded our our content operation, our chief medical officer uses the phrase, what are you adding to the internet? And I think about that a lot. Every time we do a piece, we do, what are you adding to the internet? And in our briefs that we do out to writers, the, the document that has the outline, I ask them, what's the reason for this piece to exist? And I forget how I phrase it, but it's something essentially like somebody reads this piece and sits down at a bar next to their friend. How do they describe it? Like, give me a sentence. And if we can answer those two questions, the piece is just going to be a lot more successful rather than write the piece and then try to figure that out at the end. And you mentioned you're running a test or it sounds like a little bit of an experiment right now with like incorporating like an AI writing tool or research tool into the process. How has that gone so far? Like, what have you learned? Have, th- have there been any like key takeaways so far? I'm still in learning mode. I was surprised at the experiment that I mentioned where I, I started by really putting a lot of effort into both the research and the prompt. And I went through probably 20 iterations of this particular piece that I was going for. It was a, it was a, a keyword opportunity. And, you know, I got this sort of traditional outline. Then I went to one of the AI tools and had it write me a version and then just kind of kept refining it to get it to as close as I thought the AI could get it and then sent it off to the writer and said, here's your starting point. If you have to rewrite this word for word, that's fine. Uh, If you can use some of what's there, that's okay. By the way, here's a couple of AI checkers. I want you to constantly run this through as you're reworking it so that we get to a decent score and it doesn't 
you know, look like it's purely AI generated. Checking the studies is a huge thing. I found there are tools that are better than others, but it's a real problem for me in the AI world that AI hallucinates studies because everything we do is based on primary research. If you look at any of our articles, there's constant links throughout all off to studies and AI just totally makes them up, which was a weird thing for me to learn the first time I used it. I thought, wow, this is great. Look at all the studies it found for me because that's usually a big part of our reporting is just finding the best studies. And then I went to search for them and I was like, wait, these don't exist. And a, a coworker said, oh yeah, you don't know AI hallucinates studies. So that was part of it was just go out and make sure these are real. And, and the tools are getting better at that. And there are some tools that are that are better than others that, that sort of doing that. I was impressed at how close we were able to get to get a pretty decent piece. I wouldn't say it was an A plus piece. It was not a deep dive. We have the, the type of article we call ultimate guide, which are 5000 word deeply reported deep dives into things. It wasn't that this was a 1500 2000 word, you know, relatively high level SEO optimized piece, it got pretty close. And I think ultimately, it saved time, it probably saved about half the time that a writer would normally spend. The other thing I've found to be a bit of an unlock is using tools like Claude that allows you to feed in articles and Claude lets you do up to five. So I can output some of our articles that are relevant that, that are on similar topics, I feed it into Claude, and then I say, write me a piece that is or give me an outline that is in the same voice and style as this that uses some of these same studies use this as your first line of research and then add to it and when i compare that to something like a generic gpt4 output it's much better and the other place that tool's been super helpful for me is in things like summaries so writing a meta description we do a key highlights at the top of every article just like a five point thing that frankly i've always known i should do i always forget to do it they were missing from a ton of our articles but claude does it so well. It's now an automated process I set up with my EA where she just goes through and like outputs the text, runs it through Claude, takes the sentences and drops them directly into the article and I don't even have to touch it anymore. So that kind of stuff has been helpful. I think the more we can train, the more we can, it can easily train AIs. My, my idea is to, what I really want to get to, and I just haven't quite figured this out yet, is to train the AI on our full blog and really everything that we've done. And then maybe an additional set of our research papers. We've got a giant library of research papers we've used. If I could feed all that in to an AI, I think I could eliminate 80% of the work I do for most of the articles I do. Well, I think you're using AI how like Google might suggest to use it as like a helpful supplement and sidekick to help you like work more efficiently and create better content for readers and not so much to like blindly copy and paste like hundreds or in some cases I've seen thousands of pieces of content blindly from like an AI writing tool. I think that's a recipe for disaster in a lot of ways, but it's extremely interesting to me that like you saved, it sounded like 50% of the time possibly in creating that piece with like those prompts and like the, the process that you you put that content through do you plan on like going down a similar path again like with a, a future piece of content is this something you think you'd do more of in the future yeah definitely i mean my challenge to myself look there's a there's a very easy world. And a lot of folks who've been around as long as i have and and in, with my background are fighting ai tooth and nail and Fortunately, I work in a very sort of tech forward, uh, you know, startup environment where I think I'd probably be fired if I did that. So I have a real incentive to like, no, let's figure out how to work with the robot overlords. Um, but I really have challenged myself to do that, to like be very open minded about how I can use this tool, how it can make me better. So yeah, this is just one of continual experiments. The thing I want to figure out how to further optimize is that prompt work at the front end. So like I said, it probably took me 20 prompts to get to an article I liked. I want to do some more examination there and figure out how can I get that to 10 or five? Just how can I write better and better prompts? And it's not a novel problem. Anybody uses AI thinks about this, but I think in terms of getting to the output that I want sooner, I think that's the other place I could save some real time.
And I know that you mentioned the fact checkers are like a critical part of the editorial process. And I know on the site, I've seen like the reviewed by labels at like the tops of your blog posts, which I love from like a Google EE standpoint. Are like the fact checkers the ones who are getting like listed as those individuals who've actually done the review? Is that how that all kind of comes together? No, I'm glad you mentioned that. It's actually another step that we have. And and I didn't mention it before because we largely don't pay for it. There's a couple of folks we, we give a little bit monthly to, but no, we that's sort of a final step. So the fact checkers are, aren't actually even listed on the site. Perhaps they should be. I know some sites do that. After the fact check, we then send the piece off to what we call an expert reviewer, usually an MD or a nutritionist, depending on the piece. Uh, and we have a handful we work with who know us and know our style and are sort of philosophically aligned with, with our perspective on these things. And they're the kind of final red team on it of just like, you know, their instruction is to beat it up, like tear this apart. Tell me what's wrong. Tell me what we missed. Sometimes we use them on the front end as well. So we don't, you know, get a a bad result at the end. At this point, we're all pretty aligned and we know what we're doing, but are there whole sections here that shouldn't be here? Is there something that's wary? Is there some way we've used a study you don't think is accurate or useful? Is there perspective we're missing here that you as an MD would have? So no, that's a, that's a final step. And frankly, we started doing that for search purposes because somebody early on told us like Google will reward this. And it was helpful for us both in our editorial process, but then making sure that's listed on the site, uh, I think has been helpful as well. Yeah, I think it's a great idea and great concept to incorporate, especially if you're actually doing the work. I think we've seen now almost every substantial website in like the health or finance spaces like do now have like the reviewed by verified by type labels on their content. Is there anything else besides like the reviewer step in like your creation process that we might have missed that's that's worth mentioning? If you're playing in the space, I think you should start from the perspective of wanting to get all of this stuff right and as right as you can as a sort of starting like that's step one step two is how does this work for search how does this optimize how does this get us growth etc and so i feel like you shouldn't need google to prompt you into like making sure you're accurate um whatever those steps might be but but it, it really is something you have to do all the way through from the ideation of the piece to the research that goes into the outline to the writer and their instructions and then through things like fact checking and expert reviewers are icing like your piece should be good before that but you know, even as much work as we put in, our fact checkers and reviewers still find stuff like it is still absolutely a valuable step for us to make sure these things are as bulletproof as they can be. For all of our listeners in the Your Money, Your Life space, you should just do exactly what Mike has suggested. I think you guys have nailed it. I'm super impressed and I, I have not had a guest on yet that has described their process to this detail. So we thank you for that. And earlier, like you did mention KPIs, so I have to ask, but I also know that like KPIs and goal setting in the content marketing world, it's often an incredibly hard thing to do and to get right. Like what are some of those like goals or KPIs you track and and like how do you go about setting them? I know we've just like started the fourth quarter. I guess my question in short is what are the goals we should be tracking and like how do you go about setting them for this channel? Yeah, it's a really good question. And again, I think this is a really key point to that expectation setting. And and internally, this is a thing I say to content folks all the time is like make sure you have very clear alignment with your company leadership about what your KPRs, KPIs are and why, because that ladders up to why do you exist at this company? Why are you a budget line at all? And it is very frequent that content directors change every six months because they don't have that conversation. And the leadership comes in and goes like, hey, you're not performing. And they go, well, I didn't think this is what I was supposed to do. And then they get fired and they hire a new content director who also fails to have that conversation. Like you, you see this if you look at heads of contents, LinkedIn's, um, a lot of them are short-lived. So figure out what your goals are, right? If it's a pure 
growth focused content operation, which a lot of folks are, and that's fine, then you really want those growth metrics, right? Then you're really looking at both your top of funnel impact. So things like traffic, um, but really, I think you should be prioritizing your conversions, um, you know, off of that or whatever your conversion step is, whether that's email capture or whether it's a purchase um, or whatever it might be, but really figure out what your primary conversion metric is, what matters to your company, and then really optimize around that and and put that before things like top of funnel. Because we see this all the time. I'm sure you see this in a lot of folks you work with that like, there's a bunch of things you can do to grow top of funnel. You can grow audience, but 10xing the audience if it doesn't touch your conversions or if it increases your conversions by 0.2% was not a use of a good use of your money uh, and your time. So for us early on, you know, that wasn't the metric. We first of all, we were in a, a beta stage up until the middle of 22, so we were waitlist only. I had no real conversion goal. My only goal was to educate people. And so top of funnel was my primary metric. It was traffic and engagement. That was the secondary one was are people reading this stuff? We're paying to write 5,000 word deep dive articles you know, what do we see about time on page for those specific pieces? Average time on page is less useful. Average pages per visit is less useful because I see this all the time that across all your articles, like it always comes down to 1.2, right? It's like, it kind of is what it is. But if you look at the individual pieces and go like, look, we have this really big deep dive. Is the average time on page 30 seconds or is it seven minutes? And for us, a lot of times we would see it seven minutes, which means like, okay, folks are actually reading this piece, which means we're fulfilling our goal of education. Like at the end of the day, it's just folks have to get this information. Now we're much more more, uh, growth focus. So we still look at those things, but now our primary metrics really visits the homepage. So that's really been our conversion rate optimization metric is how well are we driving folks off to our homepage where then they can enter our sales funnel. Um, and then a secondary one is email capture. I love that you're setting more granular goals or you've set set more granular goals in the past on the actual experience readers or searchers are having on the pages themselves. Like I think traffic is like the most popular goal people set, but then they'll often ask me, especially after like an algorithm update, like where, you know, traffic might not be squarely in their control, like how to best set goals and KPIs. And I love that, like you're looking at things like time on page or bounce rate to know if like the content we're actually creating is a good piece and not just like top line traffic, because that's often a very hard metric to manipulate. And uh, it can often be out of control for like heads of content or content marketing teams. So I think that's awesome. As far as like how to know if it's working, a question that I'm often asked by like very early stage companies is how do I know if it's working? Like I'm three months in, I've been putting in a lot of effort, but I'm not sure if I should keep working on this. Like what are some of like those maybe earliest KPIs or goals that you could set to know if like it's working as a channel that we should keep investing in? I think a lot of it does come down to setting those expectations early. And I think road mapping your content operation, particularly if you're starting from scratch, is a really smart idea. Let's talk about what this should look like at three months, six months, a year, two years, right? And if it's a startup, things are going to change. So two years, it's going to be a little fuzzier. But don't expect it to look the same at a year as it looks at three months. Like at three months, you're still just trying to build traffic, trying to build a, a you know a presence and your average pages per visit is going to be a lot lower when you've got 20 pages up versus 500, right? So be conscious about the context in which these KPRs are trying to be achieved for where you are as an organization. The other thing I tell folks is don't ignore the qualitative, like have that as part of the conversation with leadership early on. Go, look, here's our set of quantitative metrics that we're going to agree upon. Here's how I'm going to report them. Here's what the report's going to look like. Here's how often you're going to get it. And here's the kind of goals that we're going to be looking for. And here's an ABC scenario of like, we kill it, we do okay, or we start to fail. And here's what I'm going to do 
in each one of those, right? If we kill it, we're going to invest more. If I'm starting to fail, here's the change I'm going to make at three months. So that's all great in the quantitative space, but also have the qualitative discussion of like, what's going to make you happy, Mr. CEO or Ms. CEO, when you look at this, when you look at our blog, is it going to be purely looking at the dollars that I have generated? Do you want to see that we are writing better stuff than our competitors, that you can look at it and feel like, we are more research-based, we are more thorough, we are adding more to the internet than our competitors are. Do you want to see topics that other people haven't covered? What is it that's going to make you happy? And find a way to just at least keep revisiting those qualitative metrics. You know, Do that as part of your check-in, even quarterly, to just go to your leadership and say, like, how are you generally feeling about this? When you look at the blog, you look at the content site, you look at the newsletter, whatever our content output happens to be, how does it make you feel when you look at it? And you will often get an answer where they go, you know, to be honest, I'm a little frustrated. I thought we were going to be writing more about X and it turns out we're not. And you go, right, I know, but the reason we're doing that is because X, because that we've actually found that the SEO opportunity is in this topic, not that topic, you know, but let's have a discussion about whether we should focus on it. Or otherwise people might, this happens, has happened to me that, you know, you might get a kudos from the CEO who goes like, look, I don't know what your metrics are right now, but God, every time I read an article, I just like learn something new. It's so interesting. I'm learning all this stuff I didn't know. That qualitative goodwill goes a long way in preventing that kind of churn that I talked about often happens with content folks. Because as you pointed out, a lot of these metrics you can't control. Google might screw you six months in, right? Or what works as a conversion might change or a competitor. This has happened to us. We have competitors who have 4X the amount of content we do. They kill us on a lot of SEO stuff. But like that's not the primary metric I am judged against. My CEO also keeps in mind that like he loves the stuff I do. He learns a lot from it. He shares it with people. It still helps with investors. It helps with members. So like, don't ignore the qualitative stuff uh, along with those kind of quantitative plans. I think that's a great piece of feedback and advice for our listeners. And you mentioned competitors. Like, and have you found that in the content marketing space, we can zoom in on SEO if we want, but we can start more broadly. Have you found that like content marketing is getting more competitive? Is it more competitive than it was like a few years ago to like break through the noise and actually get those eyeballs? Yeah, I think in general, I think it's been getting more competitive, I would say probably the past decade or so. Then I think it probably breaks down a little bit into your space. So early on for us, it was less so four years ago, and we were pretty early entrance into the space. Now there's four or five companies that do pretty close to what we do, and it certainly has gotten a lot more competitive. I used to see when I would do an SEO analysis against some of our keywords that I thought were helpful for us, my competitors were all WebMD and Healthline. Now competitors, you know, other commerce companies are usually in the top five because it, it just has got more competitive in that way. So again, we don't focus a lot on traffic for that reason. And we try to be not very competitor focused as a company in general, because we just feel like let's serve our members and, and our potential customers and let the rest sort of shake out. But definitely the competition has been increasing. And I think we're at an interesting inflection point now that the cost of content is essentially zero, you know, for some of the AI tools that we talked about before. I hope that quality will start to make a difference. But I think also that what you do with the content, the conversion rate optimization stuff is going to be much more important. And that's going to be harder to see when you look at your competitors. It's easy to do the SEMrush analysis and go like, oh, okay, they're ranking for this, but does it work for them? You know, that's going to make understanding the competitive landscape a little bit more tricky. And I hate to do this, but I have to go back to content process and strategy one more time. I know now that you have this like large portfolio of content, it's got to be what, like 500 plus articles at this point? Yeah, I think we're about 515 something now. So once you've created like 500 articles, do you have to spend a lot of time going back to that content? Is that like a big line item in your timesheet, like going back to previously published content, either updating it because some scientific journal has changed its stance or 
maybe the content's just out of date. Is that something that you as a team or, or you and your freelance team spend a lot of time thinking about? It's not a huge time suck, but it is definitely something that, that we take into account and we do try to revisit both on the kind of research-based stuff for exactly the things that you just mentioned. A lot of the stuff we do, the research is pretty long tail. There might be studies that are 10, 15 years old, but we do try to go back and incorporate, particularly for our highest traffic or our sort of most you know corpus pieces, the pieces that are most essential to kind of making our point or doing our education. There, we try to go back pretty much semi-annually. And usually I'll have a fact checker do it. They're really great at this because they're good at finding studies and say, hey, just do a scan out there and see if like there's any new research that would make this point better, that would just be a more updated study on this kind of thing. But also, you know, we've as we've started to do more content marketing content, which is to say writing specifically about a product, which is something we didn't do for the first couple of years. I've had to institute a monthly auditing process for that because our product changes. So my screenshots are out of date. and The way that we describe a feature is out of date. And so that requires a lot more updating and than even the sort of scientific stuff. But I think keeping the content up to date is important, if, if only because, you know, again, you want it to be accurate. It's sort of, it, it's ridiculous to have a piece you spend a bunch of time and money on that turns out not to be accurate anymore. It undermines its whole purpose. And I know you and I, um, outside of this podcast, have, have talked quite a bit about conversion rate optimization and like a buyer journey. And I know it depends on like the different stage of the funnel in which that content falls. But have you had any like, you know, unlocks so far in like your conversion rate optimization efforts? Or is there anything that you've learned that might be helpful for our listeners when it comes to actually converting that reader into either an email collect or a sign up to the product? Yeah, I would say this is where, you know, we're definitely still in the in the learning phase here. This is really, we've really only started to focus on this in the last six months or so. So I'm very much in the experimentation phase. I could say the one thing that I've learned that I think is a durable finding, I'm going to do some more experimenting to find out if this is true or if this is just an anomaly, is that text-based CTAs that are contextually relevant have far outperformed kind of traditional you know image or creative base. So, you know, we put in what I call a side rail ad where it's just a little... A box on the uh, you know side of the the article that stays there as you scroll, and we've done some more traditional kind of banners, more graphic things, right? That we can build in Canva and that look pretty. Those have converted at least on a click basis far less well than than what I started doing, which is just putting a tiny picture of the product, um, putting a headline that was contextually relevant to the article that you're reading. So if it's a weight loss article, it would say something like, "Hey, ready to." you know, take some steps to manage your weight and then writing a couple sentences about the product and having just a learn more link off to our homepage. The clicks on those have been two, three X what I've gotten on some of the other creative. Again, I don't know if that's a matter of maybe my creative sucked in the other things I tried first, but that's an experimentation. The other thing we ran that was pretty interesting with those those text-based CTAs is we were dropping them at the bottom of articles. Because again, for us, it's like, we really want to be education focused. We don't want this to look like it's purely a marketing site. So I was a little wary about putting them up high, but I thought, well, let's run the experiment. And so we took about 10 of our most traffic pieces and I put the CTA pretty up high, not above the fold, but just below the fold and didn't really see any improvement. So again, I don't know if that's anomalous or we have to do some more digging, but it didn't seem to make that much difference. These are again, pretty education focused pieces. These aren't pure content marketing stuff. So I think that if somebody's going to click on it, they're going to click on it. It didn't seem to matter in the context of those kinds of pieces if it was up high or down low. So Mike, a few times you've mentioned the weekly newsletter and uh, you said something that like stood out to me. You said that sometimes the pieces that aren't like the most SEO focused tend to actually perform the best uh, in the newsletter. Like what makes like a good piece of content to then go and include in a newsletter? And have you found that people who click through a newsletter interact differently on the website than someone who might come from a search engine like Google? 
I think what we found with our newsletter, and this might be a, a remnant of the fact that, you know, our blog has been very education focused. So a lot of the email capture has come from folks who came to the site either via Google or, or some other way to kind of learn about something as opposed to being in the midst of a commerce journey, is that education focused articles work much better in our newsletter. When we do product marketing in the newsletter, it doesn't convert well. I would say of all of our conversion levers, our weekly editorial newsletter, which is which was largely built out of, hey, here's what's new on the blog. It's okay. It does a bit, you know, it does some conversions, but it's certainly not our biggest driver compared to other things. And we found that pushing hard doesn't really work. So including things like a content marketing piece at the bottom of the newsletter. So I might have three stories that are about, you know, foods you can eat, uh, conditions that, you know, blood sugar relates to things that are very sort of education focused, how to, you know, Think about zone two exercise and your metabolic health. And then at the bottom, I'll put something that's like how levels can help you with weight loss and link off to a content marketing piece that's about that. If I look at full journey, those actually convert better than if I just do a direct CTA at the bottom of the newsletter, like, you know, hey, levels is great. Click here to buy it. Those just don't tend to work as well in our newsletter. I think, again, because it's pretty education focused and that seems to be the engagement. I think us, we're still very much in the midst of figuring out the value of our email list. We have a very big email list in part because we were waitlist only for two years. So it gave us an opportunity to build a giant email list. But then for the last couple of years, year and a half, once we were no longer a wait list, the folks coming in were coming in off of blog page signups, mostly or modals that we run on the blog. Um, and so that audience wants things a little bit differently. But um, we've really found that there's a cutoff point of engaged versus not engaged people. And our engaged people are super engaged. Like we get 75% open rates, we get 10, 11% click throughs. Um, on our newsletter consistently, like kind of regardless of what topic I run. The only topic that will always, that always wins, I did the internal phrase I use is worst is best. When I run the 10 worst foods for metabolic health, the five worst things you can eat, that always kills. Like it's just, and that's the thing that's like, it, nobody Googles that, right? It's not, that's not a search term. I don't do those articles to really win at search, but they will, you know, I'll get a 30% increase on my traffic from the newsletter that week of those folks coming in. Now, you know, are those folks ultimately valuable from a conversion perspective? That's nah, kind of what we're still learning. It's like, how do we best nurture people through? And we have a whole bunch of other email tools that we're building and that we use to drive nurturing. But we've remained convinced internally that, you know, having quarter million people, 300,000 people getting this weekly digest and, and engaging at that level just has value for the company in some way, even if I'm not driving, you know, thousands of conversions off it every week. Yeah, there, there's often like an intangible value or a hard to quantify value of just being like that trusted brand and a trusted source of information in your space. But whenever I do like a sales call and someone's like, I've read your blog before, or even like I've read every article on your blog before, then it's like, I know there's a high likelihood that they would want to be a customer of ours, whether it's today or, or in the future. And, and so I think from like a brand exercise content is like an extremely powerful lever, even if those people aren't converting yet today, you've, you've got them engaged for hopefully a long time and 75% open rates, like that's fantastic. So congrats. That's amazing. As far as SGE goes, and I asked most of our guests this, like Google's new search experience, what do you make of it? Do you have any thoughts so far on Google's SGE? Not really. I think I'm still in a in a learning mode. I, I feel like all of search right now is just at this really interesting, and you guys are way smarter at this than I am, but just at such an interesting inflection point of like the model that we have all used for search and that we've built our, you know, SEO optimized businesses on is going away and it's going away more rapidly than I think we were sort of prepared for. I mean, a year ago I was not thinking about this at all. And now I'm sort of thinking like 
I don't know how much longer I can count on, you know, I think about half our traffic roughly to the blog in any given month, 40 to 50% is organic. And I feel like that's just going to go down, like as, as search changes, as it becomes more AI driven. I just think the landscape's going to change a lot. So SGE and, and anything else that's happening right now, I'm trying to stay aware of, but I'm not forming any opinions yet. Well, this has been such a fantastic episode. If it's okay with you, I would love to transition to a rapid fire round. Does that sound good? Sure. Let's do it. So my first question is on woodworking. I saw that that's an area you have quite a bit of experience in. Tell me about that. Yeah, I, my stepdad taught me wood tools when I was a kid. I went away from it for 20 years. And when I lived in a small apartment in the East Village in New York, I got a crazy idea one weekend that I wanted to get back into it. I went to Home Depot and I bought two tools and I made a coffee table in our kitchen. Got sawdust everywhere uh, and it just sort of reignited the passion. So for the last 20 years, I kind of on and off, I've you know done woodworking in my spare time. I'm uh, much more interested in it than I am good at it. I feel like this is my retirement plan. It's like, you know, when I'm 70 and not working anymore, I'll, I'll learn to actually get good at this. As far as agencies go, because I know you mentioned you've used agencies alongside like the in-house or excuse me, like the in-house freelancer team. Like when does it make sense to also bring on like an agency to help support the content creation motion? Great question. I think A, it comes down to, you know, again, figure out what your expectations are, find an agency that aligns. That's again, where a lot of times the agency stuff goes wrong. Like, you know, we used content agency early on before I came on board. They didn't work because they couldn't do what Casey wanted them to do. I managed to find an agency that's made up of a bunch of former journalists and editorial folks. They know exactly the kind of stuff we want. They have the networks that can operate and get done what we want to get done. So I think that's really important. I think when it makes sense is when you need the flexibility that an agency provides because you just can't make the full-time hire to do it. So you know, you just don't have the overhead. You don't know whether or not this is going to work. And you need something that you can try for six months, even if you're paying a premium to have that outsourced rather than in-house. Yeah. And how big is like the premium in your experience? It varies a lot. I would say the content agency we use right now, it's not that high. I literally just had a conversation with us with our growth director right before this podcast of, of trying to go back and do that math of like, okay, if we did this in-house and we take into account my time, is it worthwhile? And in that case, it's still a value. But you know, I think in general, I tend to think of it as a, like a 50% premium. It's just sort of my heuristic that I imagine with any given sort of skill set. But again, it depends on kind of what you have in-house. There are things that I just am not good at. And so there's a huge value and, you know, bringing on a real expertise as opposed to me kind of messing around, trying to figure it out and, you know, burning my very valuable time for the company that could be spent doing what I'm really good at. Then ultimately, it's a much better value, even if it is just on a dollar basis more expensive. Our guests have a love-hate relationship with backlinks, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts. Is it something you worry about? Do you spend any time thinking about building backlinks? Not much anymore. We were very fortunate in the first few years that we had a great PR agency and we got a lot of really good tier one press. So we kind of got a lot of those high quality backlinks. We've visited it a couple times. You know, I've had some conversations with like real backlink focused agencies. I've, you know, heard the argument that this is the most important thing you can do. I've heard the argument that it makes absolutely no difference at all. Uh, and so I just choose not to think about it. I really spend very little time. The only thing I've done recently is is I actually went through, you know, SEMrush's backlink auditing process and tried to get Google to get rid of a bunch of my toxic links. I have no idea if it matters. I've seen no change. You know, SEMrush still tells me I've got a toxicity score I should do something about, but even they haven't been able to tell me what to do about it. So I don't spend a lot of time thinking about backlinks, to be honest. 
My opinion there is that you don't need to worry too much about disavowing what could be like a toxic backlink. I see a lot of our customers do this. They'll upload like the disavow file like once a month. And I think Google's actually gotten incredibly good at ignoring backlinks. And unless there's like a concentrated attack against you, they're often pretty good at figuring out what they should ignore and uh, what they should keep. And by the way, you'll get a backlink from us in the show notes. So you've built at least one backlink today, but this has been an awesome episode, one of my favorites, and we will, you know, include a link back to your LinkedIn and website in the show notes. But is there anything else that you want to say to our listeners? No, I think this has been great. I just really good questions. And I think we we covered a lot of ground. So the uh, only thing I'll add is I've got a we're very transparent as a company. We and we're async and remote. So everything is documentation. I've got a couple of pretty thorough content memos that really lay out what we do and why that we make public. So if you would like them, I'm happy to share them and you can put them in the show notes. We are absolutely going to include those in the show notes. So keep a lookout for those to all the listeners. But Mike, thank you so much for coming on the Optimize podcast. This was awesome. Excellent. Thanks for having me. This episode of the Optimize Podcast is brought to you by a special sponsor. If you're anything like me, you've probably got a lot of content that's not very well optimized, and it can be a total pain in your butt to optimize it and ultimately get it to rank better in search. And that's what positional does. Positional has an incredible tool set for everything from content optimization to technical SEO and planning your editorial calendar. And if you don't know by now, I'm one of the co-founders of Positional and I'd love for you to check it out.